to Psalm 133. In case you forgot, we've been doing a series on the Davidic Psalms, and this is one of the Psalms of David. Though there's nothing really distinct about the Psalm that would make you think about David, because there's not anything historically connected necessarily to David, but we might be able to find a couple of things that we can relate to the life of David. Psalm 133, I think you have the lyrics, uh, rather the scriptures above on the overhead. And by the way, he's the only brother I know that can read at the pulpit and be blocking the screen at the same time. He was blocking out some of the words from my vantage point. Anyway, Psalm 133, we're going to stick with the King James. I love the, I love the cadence here. I love the wording of, of King James and Psalm 133. Let's read from verses 1 to verse 3, the whole psalm. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that came down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. That word behold could be understood this way. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. This is a summons to the reader to the audience, to the people of God. Behold, hear ye, hear ye, hear. In other words, God wants to grab our attention. And this is something that should grab us. It should grip us. Because God says there's something very unique about a unity that He cherishes and that He informs us that He will command a blessing to such a place. Unity. Everybody wants to be unified to something, to somebody. Even Barbara Streisand said, People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Everybody wants to have someone to cling to. How wonderful it is that a man and a woman can come together in marriage. And the Bible says the two become one flesh. That's an amazing unity. How about the unity of the home, the unity of a family? Something that we should covet for. Jesus says, if a house be divided against itself, it cannot stand. In other words, Jesus is saying, that's not a home, that's not a house, when it's divided against itself. How about the church? Ephesians describes the church as fitly formed together to form a habitation of God. Wow. Fitly formed together. That's a real unity. How about the unity unity that we have with the Lord Himself? It says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, He that is joined to the Lord is one Spirit. Now David obviously is not talking about any of those specifics Going back in his time zone, David must have been referring to national unity. Beholding how good 
and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He saw fractures, did he not, in the nation of Israel. He, of course, had difficulties for years with Saul, who became an enemy of his. Not to David, but he became Saul's enemy, we should understand it that way. He was pursued. He had family difficulties. He had personal difficulties. But most importantly, he saw, and God inspired him to write this, the value of national unity. We have a greater than David, though, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if David wanted national unity, what do you think Jesus' prayer and desire would be? Where do we find that desire expressed? John 17. Jesus' prayer, listen to His words. I pray, and He's praying to the Father, that they, that is the disciples, may be one. May be unified. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And of course, that brethren includes the whole household of faith. It includes the covenant family in the Old Testament. It includes brothers and sisters of the family of God in the New Testament. Psalm 133 is lodged in a group of psalms that are known as the Song of Degrees. Or you could say they're pilgrim psalms, pilgrim songs that were sung. Sometimes they're referred to as the ascending psalms. It's believed that these psalms, Psalm 120 to 134 inclusive, were songs that were sung as pilgrims made their way to the temple later than when David wrote, because David didn't live in the temple era. He lived in the tabernacle era, which in a sense made no difference because it was, in each case, the place where the Lord had chosen to put His name. So if it was read in the days of the tabernacle period or the temple period, the same truths applied and these psalms had relevance. There was a joy to go up to the house of the Lord. One of these Song of Degree Psalms, Psalm 122 verse 1 says, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Man, if there was an enthusiasm that was expressed, it's right there in Psalm 122. I wonder how it was sung. You know, they were dancing. They had the timbrels off. They had the music. They were hopping excited about going to the house of the Lord. Boy, it would be great if we as Christians had that same excitement enthusiasm when our alarm goes up on Sunday morning and we wake up and say, I was glad my alarm went off. I'm going to go up into the house of the Lord. Now, of course, this building is not the house of the Lord and there's a distinction, obviously, between the way an Old Testament believer would use the word house and the way we would understand it. We would have an application of it to ourselves, meaning where the two or three are gathered together in His name, there Jesus says, am I in the midst of them? That in itself should be enough to make me say, I'm glad to be able to go up to the house of the Lord, where the two or three are gathered together in His name. Now the Israelites made three pilgrimages 
that were required of them, particularly the males, each year. There were three major feasts that they were required to attend, and that meant making a journey to Jerusalem for wherever they were located. The first one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that Feast of Unleavened Bread is oftentimes thought of as the Passover because they're pretty much the same feast. One is back-to-back with the other. The Feast of Unleavened Bread follows on with the Feast of the Passover. So anyway, the first feast of importance would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second one would be what we know to be called Pentecost, or it was called also the Feast of Weeks. And the third major feast that all the Israelites were required to go to was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jews were expected to be in the feast I want to concentrate on would be the Feast of Pentecost. Again, these are the Song of Degrees, the Psalms that would be sung on the journey to Jerusalem where they would worship the Lord. And in the book of Leviticus chapter 23, it tells us that the Jews were expected to bring, quote, an offering of new grain to the Lord. The offerings were to be two wave offerings Bacon with, that is baked, with leaven. Two wave or grain offerings were to be waved in the tabernacle before the Lord. Now the waving would be something like this. Now I want you to think of the real fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. We know it to be the Feast of Pentecost. And that's why when... The Holy Spirit came down on that particular day when Peter and the others were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke about the wonderful works of God in many different languages and dialects. Jerusalem was packed with people. It was packed. It's like the beaches today, I suppose, where people are flocking for refreshment and coolness while the children of Israel would flock to Jerusalem. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that the population would swell, and I believe this is an exaggerated number, he was not an expert on knowing how to, how to tabulate attendance at, at, at a place like this, but he said there was 1.1 million people that would come to Jerusalem. And the average population of Jerusalem at the time was approximately 30,000 people. Can you imagine, even if it's 500,000 people, That's an immense amount of people converging on one place. Not just Jerusalem, but they're coming to the temple for worship. We can learn something from Judaism. When we look at the past, we don't just dismiss it like our brother said. There's so many rich things in the old that feed into the new. And I hope that this morning we can see something about that and what's going to be said. And our brother already has given us a little flavor for what we want to talk about this morning. Now let's get back to those two wave lows on the day of Pentecost that were being waved. And these wave lows were baking with what leaven? And what does leaven symbolize? Sin. In many cases, leaven was to be put away from the homes. Leaven wasn't to be used. But in this particular case, leaven was to be used in the baking of the wave loaf. 
So if leaven speaks of sin, and two wave loaves are used in the ceremony, what do we get from that? Well, let's look at it this way. And I think this can be biblically accurate. We have one loaf representing the Jews, another loaf representing the Gentiles. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit descends from heaven and baptizes believing Gentiles and believing Jews into one body, one people. What kind of people? A people that are sinners. We have sinful natures. The sinful natures aren't yanked out of us. God saves us with a sinful nature, but gives us a new nature so that we can overcome the dominion of sin in our lives. But most importantly, in this Pentecost ceremony, we have the two wave loaves symbolizing the Jew and the Gentile. Some people say you don't see the church in the Old Testament prophesied. Well, here's an excellent example of a symbol of the church that is the new church age when the Jews and the Gentiles become one people, where the middle wall of partition was broken. Now, that doesn't mean that Christianity and Judaism are united. Don't misunderstand me. The only union that can exist is the union that we have with Christ and with the people who belong to Christ. That is the church of the living God. Not all people that call themselves Christians are Christians. As a matter of fact, there are more Christians that need to be saved to become Christians than those that are of the world. I I would refer to them as unsaved professing Christians who still need a conversion experience in order to enter into the family of God. Now, let's look for a moment at the following words. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What is that like? Verse 32, verse 32, verse 2 of Psalm 133 reads like this. It is like the precious ointment. Precious ointment. What were we hearing about? What was read in Exodus chapter 30 about that special holy ointment? There was nothing like it. There was no possibility of manufacturing something like this on your own. It was a specially ordained and and prescribed solution that God had in the way these different perfumes, or you could call them spices rather, were mixed together. Let me give you an idea. The sacred anointing oil consisted of the mixture of these four spices, myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, and cassia. Specially blended by the skills of a perfumer. This wasn't just your everyday person who's going to do some chemistry work and kind of mix these things together in some composition. This was a skilled person who God utilized for bringing this substance to come to pass. The application of it, though, upon an individual did not particularly have medicinal effects but signified rather esoteric sanctification. In other words, a special separation for this individual for consecrational purposes. The anointing was administered upon only an elite few individuals. Yes, we heard that the priests were anointed, but 
The special, special anointings were those that were performed upon only three individuals. A prophet, a king, and a priest. Now why does David use, since the, this special ointment was applied to more than just the priest, it was the prophet and the king as well, why does David choose the priest to be the one as the symbol of the oil upon the head and trickling down as the one that symbolizes the kind of brethren, to, uh, brethren dwelling together in unity. First, let me say this. A prophet speaks to the people. A king rules over the people. But a priest identifies with the people. There's an important difference there. Let me say that again. A prophet speaks to the people. A king rules over the people. But a priest identifies with the people. Aren't you and I glad that we have a merciful, a great high priest who's able to have compassion upon us? Why? Because he endured what we went through. We have a merciful, compassionate, caring, understanding high priest. He's touched with all the feelings of our infirmities. When that woman reached out with her disease and just touched the hem of his garment, immediately it says that virtue or power went out of him. What an awesome Lord we have that He is touched with all of the feelings of our infirmities. Psalm 45 says, Thou hast anointed me with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Who is that? Again, this is a, 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 a psalm of David's, I believe, Psalm 45. I could be wrong on that, but who are the fellows? You have anointed me with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. I know we, it, the, the, the interpretation of Hebrews chapter 1 is referring to the angelic community. And they were certainly an elite uh, body of beings that God had created in a special way that have a superiority over mankind in many ways. But could it be, and I wondered about this, you have anointed me with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Could it be that the high priest had an anointing above the prophets and above the kings? There is something specially unique of each of those offices, undoubtedly. But the priest's office is the one that the people could have the closest communion with and identification with because he was just like them. It tells us that in Hebrews chapter 5. So that he could have compassion on the ignorant and those that were out of the way. The Old Testament high priest had to offer up sacrifices for himself first. Which symbolized that he had infirmities just like everybody else did. Now Jesus does not have to offer an offering for himself. But in spite of that, he's still able to commune with us because of his incarnational capacities that he gained when he became a person. Now, if I was to pick somebody in our audience who would represent somebody like a high priest, it'd have to be somebody like this guy here. The beard. Mike, Mike Leo would have been a perfect priest. I thought of bringing some oil and pouring on his head, but I, Michelle talked me out of it. And he's not here anyway, so it wouldn't have worked. So, But... I did want us to get us 
get, give us a sense of what it would be like. And I know I use oil all the time in my salads. Everybody uses oil for something, but it's thick. It doesn't run quickly. It's slow. The way in which it oozes and the way it drips, it just sort of soaks. It saturates. Well, that's what David is using in the psalm to describe what unity is like. It, it, it happens on the head. And by the way, when Jesus is anointed in the New Testament, and you can correct me on this, and I did a quick look on this, but when the woman anoints Jesus, it's always the feet that are anointed. And the hairs wiping the feet in water, tears dropping as well on the, on the legs of the Lord. But no anointing of the head. There was something that had to be reserved for the anointing. Now there are three anointings in Jesus' life. When He was conceived in the, in the womb, it says, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be what? The Son of God, because of the power of the highest overshadowing her. So Christ's conception is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Christ, at His baptism, the Spirit descended upon Him. That's the second anointing. And I want to tell you about the third anointing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which one would that be? Not on earth, but the promise that the Father had made to Him that He would give to the Son... The Holy Spirit, where? In heaven, when He ascended to the right hand of God and He would receive the promise from the Father of giving Him the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ was anointed in heaven by His Father. And that ointment has gone down His beard and trickled down His collar on His robe and guess what? You and I are the recipients of the crowning of the Lord Jesus' head, who is now the head of the church. The Spirit as well has come down to us equally. And now we too, with Christ, are bonded with Him by the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. That ought to be very precious to you and I, to know that Christ the Spirit that the Father gave him, the Holy Spirit, was given to him with the expectation that that gift would be given to the church, the believers here in this world. And we are all, and we're called in the New Testament, anointed of God. The anointing which we have received of Him abideth in you. For instance, in 1 John 2.27, we're anointed people of God. That ointment is the same ointment that was poured on the Lord Jesus, if you will, our great and merciful high priest, and we become the recipient of the drippings, if you will, that descend off the head, down the beard, and to the skirts, and you and I are those parts of His body, and we are spoken of as being the body of Christ. Now the second illustration that the psalmist gives is found as we read on here, Verse 3, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. The King James is a little off here, though. It would be, it's better to understand it this way. And I think the translation brings up the point that the, about the dew of Hermon. It is like, that is, this unity of the brethren 
dwelling together is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now Zion here would be speaking of Jerusalem in general. Sometimes Jerusalem is referred to Zion and there's a section of Zion that's known as the city of David that was, uh, you could say, on the fringe of the whole city. But sometimes the word Zion is just used for the whole city at large. So the dew that came upon Hermon. Can we get the picture uh, of Hermon up here? Um, I've actually seen it with my own eyes. It's very impressive, I'll tell you. Um, now, Hermon is not one particular mountain. There are, there are a number of loft, lofty mounds here. But this is referred to as Mount Hermon. This mount was special because it was the highest elevation of any of the mountains of Israel. It was there that much condescension, the dews would fall, the rain would fall, and that would come down, it would feed into the the Sea of Galilee, which would go down the Jordan River and which would end up in the Sea of Galilee. The dew of Hermon was precious. It was a valuable a resource for the nation of Israel to have. And it was always looked upon as it's probably the only place, I think, in the whole area where it would be snow-capped at different times. It was over 9,000 feet above sea level. I won't go into all the details about it, but it was the highest mountain in the, in the region. It is to, believed to be the possible place where the transfiguration of Jesus took place. And because of its height, and the Bible describes the place as a high mountain, which is exactly what that was, and after Jesus is descending from the Mount of Transfiguration, He goes to Caesarea, which would be a city nearby where Mount Hermon was. And some scholar, like for instance J.B. Lightfoot, is one of those who believes that the Mount of Transfiguration was referring to Mount Hermon. Now think of it, Moses met the Lord on Mount Sinai, which would be in the far south. Mount Hermon is 40 miles north of Galilee. And this is where Jesus, if you will, is having that divine intervention with God Himself. Dew is, is the water in the form of droplets that appears on a thin, exposed object in the morning or evening due to condensation. So you could say that earth and heaven meet and causes the dew upon the mountainside, in the top of the mountain as well. The dew. What happens in the Mount of Transfiguration? We see the Lord Jesus in His full humanity go up, and then He's transfigured in a form outwardly that proves He's not just mere man, He's a divine being as well. So we have the coming together of the earthly with the heavenly, if you will, in display on the Mount of Hermon. The earthly Jesus intersects with the heavenly Jesus in this transfiguration and becomes the dew that saturates the Israel of God, the people of God. The last verse says, and it is there that the Lord commanded the blessing. You know why some churches are having such struggles? Because there's no unity in it. I was talking to a pastor this week and his church is in 
just chaos right now. It's a horrible thing going on. The elders resigned. The church is just in chaos. And I got to talk to the pastor. Um, I know him a bit, and I just wanted to reach out to him. And I said, brother, you know what the key is? The key is to have unity in the leadership. If you have unity in the leadership, you have the trust of the people. In this particular case, I'm going to just speak generally, the church did not trust the leadership. And that was a failure. I'm not saying on the church. I'm blaming the leadership. Because there wasn't enough communion with the leadership to the body. Therefore, when the leadership made some very serious announcements, the body of people were not receptive to it. They weren't on the same page at all. And how important it is that there be that kind of intersecting between the leadership and the congregation. Uh, I said that, we say this on our website, that, that, that the church, the congregation doesn't have a vote, but they have a voice. And that voice is what needs to be, all of us, to be tuned in on. And we can hear one another and grow from one another and do the right thing as we seek the wisdom of God. And I'm not going to get into all of church government type things. That's not my point. My main point is this. Ephesians says, Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we do that? Colossians 2.19 says, Holding the head, the head, our great high priest, from which all the body, by joints and marrows, being knit together, increases with the increase of God. If you and I are cleaving to the Lord, that's going to make us want to cleave to one another. If you love the Lord equally like I love the Lord equally, we're going to get along 100% fine. Because we're holding the head. We're trusting Him. We're drawing from Him that oil, if you will, that continues to flow from our risen head to the Israel of God so that we can grow in grace and knowledge of Him. And then we can have that joy to know there, I love that expression, there, there, the Lord commanded a blessing. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your written Word that impacts us, Lord, because Your Word is inspired by You, Lord, and it's profitable for us. We ask, Lord, that You would impress upon us the truths of these verses that we read of David's from the psalm, Lord, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Lord, You say that. We don't say that, but You say it. Lord, might it be something that we would covet after. That, Lord, we would avoid contentions and strifes and anger and jealousy and anything, Lord, that would conflict with the unity of the Spirit. Not the unity of the body, but the unity of the Spirit, Lord. That is what we covet most, Lord. Help us at Sovereign Grace Chapel to have this spirit of unity in love for one another, love for the truth, in upholding our head, our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom we know all blessings flow. Hear our cry, Lord, and anyone here that is not blessed of the Lord, we pray that You would turn their eyes upon You, Lord Jesus, that they would behold You as the one who only can bring them into a relationship with Almighty God by His work, Lord Jesus, that You accomplished on the cross. So, Father, we thank You that we can commend ourselves to You. Bless our day. Uh, as you would have us to spend it. And thank you, Lord, for all your blessings in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.